evening everyone and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art and welcome to Jeff Carr, Angelica Pasiti and Kate Mitchell. And so we're here tonight um, to talk about the work of Angelica and Kate uh, and also um, Jeff's curating. Um, so new is ACCA's annual commissions exhibition which is now in its 10th year and each year, six to 10 rising Australian contemporary artists are offered the opportunity to make a bold, brave new work to exhibit here at ACCA. So tonight we are joined by New's first guest curator, which is Jeff, uh, in conversation with Sydney-based artists, Angelica and Kate. So I'd like to introduce Jeff, who will guide you through the works and uh, so Jeff is currently co-director at Sydney's Performance Space. He is a curator and writer who works across the visual arts, performance and dance. Prior to Sydney, Jeff was artistic director of the Next Wave Festival. He has also held roles at Gertrude Contemporary Art Spaces, John Curtin Gallery in Perth and the Guggenheim Museum in New York, as well as a guest curatorship at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. So tonight we'll be having uh, a talk for approximately 40 minutes and then there'll be an opportunity for you to ask uh, Jeff and the artists some questions and also have a look through the gallery after. So to start the talk, I'm going to ask Jeff. Jeff has been asked a lot of questions. <laughs> um, Don't have any interesting <laughs> answers anymore. <laughs> he's, he's, he's done with it. Um, but with such a, a massive... Well, I think it's a massive invitation to be invited to curate a show like New. Where do we start? What's that, that moment? Where do you go with it? Mm. Well, the interesting thing about New is that the brief is, is so open. Um, and really, it's been... This is the 10th year of the exhibition. It has a very strong sort of brand. Everybody knows that it happens at the beginning of every year at ACCA. But really, um, you know, the brief to a curator is that it is a series of new commissions by new artists. So I guess the first bit of play is in the flexibility of that term, new, and, uh, and what it means and the sort of nuances that each kind of curator brings to that. Um, and also, I guess it has this kind of, this legacy of the previous shows and also these very particular kind of distinctive spaces at ACCA. So I guess with all of those things in mind, um, the first approach um, or the first responsibility is to be as open as possible and really um, go out and um, do as broad a sort of range of research as you possibly can and not have too many sort of predetermined themes in your head or ideas of, of the show that you want, but knowing that I guess you've got this, this set of parameters to, to juggle or work with as, as you see fit. So, um, you know, having said that, there is um, always sort of threads or connections that emerge through the process of selecting the artists and through putting the exhibition together. And one of the really um, strong threads for me um, in this sort of final stage or shape of the exhibition is this kind of sense of um, performativity that, um, that runs through in very different ways throughout the artist's work and this fact that um, the kind of at the, at the entrance of the exhibition there are these very sort of large-scale works by Katie Lee and Ross Manning that sort of very explicitly 
engage the viewer in a sort of um, performative way and really the viewer's body and the way you sort of physically come to the work is a really important part of the work and, and by the time we move through the show um, we are sort of attuned to this sort of sense of physicality or, or performance which kind of, uh, which hopefully sort of uh, tunes you into to engaging with, with your works a little bit more which are, are very sort of engaged in ideas of performance but in, in very different ways and you both have a history as as performance artists and performance has influenced your work in, in very sort of different ways so I guess my first question is about um, what your interest in performance is and um, how it sort of led to the ideas that became these works for you. Um, <clears throat> well I have been working in performance for um, a number of years as um, as part of one part of the uh, collective the kingpins um, since 2000 but um, prior to that before I went to art school I trained in dance and studied um, before I went to art school I went to sort of London had a scholarship to study dance and stuff so I actually wanted to be a dancer before I wanted to be an artist um, uh, and so I think that's, I guess, my interest has been in sort of live performance activities since I was a kid. Um, with this work, this has kind of been part of a, a sort of thread of development over, over a period of time. With the Kingpins, we did a lot of work that was, um, you know, live stage performance, nightclub performance, um, video intervention, sort of interventions into the landscape, um, uh, video-based stuff. And, um, and that was a very fruitful period and, that, and it probably was a period where it sort of um, gave me a lot of confidence to sort of um, move into other areas of performance, I think. So over the last few years I've sort of been um, focusing more on uh, these solo projects and um, I've been more interested in turning the camera away from myself and towards um, other performance and um, I guess I've been thinking about sort of uh, performance in less formal terms as well, so um, uh, how choreography and movement and gesture um, fits in within uh, sort of daily life um, and different ways of thinking about choreography. Um, so when this work came along it was, well, it, this work's been sort of developing over the last nearly two years, but it felt like it was part of a, um, part of just the way my ideas have been developing about um, where performance sits in an everyday kind of way and how we experience it in our daily lives, I guess. Mm. And Kate, you are the performer in, in most of your works. You're the, yeah. the performer and the protagonist in a way. Um, I came to performance um, probably in much the same way as Angelica, um, but my story is that I was a sports demon as a young whippersnapper and um, always extremely physical and um, I had the most amazing art high school teacher who was totally conceptual and just opened up a completely new way of thinking about engaging with the world. So naturally when I went to art school I was lucky enough to have three totally sassy conceptual ladies that was all, they were all about um, ideas. So performance for me, it was just a way of expressing ideas, conceptual ideas, and 
because I already had a love of being, you know, really physical, they just sort of merged um, together really well for me. Um, the works in these, in this show, I think, kind of fit in the whole. You know, if I step back and look at all of the work that I've been making, um, yeah, it's always about trying to live out a particular type of situation or scenario um, that is, you know, in my mind, I'm trying to be as conceptually rigorous as possible. And often my performances, like sometimes I just have the camera and I go out into the environment by myself and it's quite scientific, like there's a situation that I'm testing and I am in control of the variables up to a certain degree and then it's, you know, record and whatever happens, happens. And then I, you know, show the work and it's up to the viewer kind of thing. Um, these works have um, kind of pushed that idea a little bit further for me in that um, OHS is troublesome. <laughs> so then taking the idea of how do I go about, I really want to live out this situation, so I have to create the scenario, um, but then the end point still remains to be the same. Can maybe each of you tell us a little bit about the genesis of these particular works? And um, interestingly enough, uh, the ideas for both of them um, originated overseas while both of you were sort of on, on residencies. But um, Angelica, do you want to tell us about, was it, did you have the idea um, that it would be a four-channel video installation and, and sort of overarching, very strong kind of thematic that underpins it? Uh, no, this, this work kind of developed um, over a long period of time, um, I was living in Paris um, on a residency and I, um, well, I'd sort of been living there for about six or seven months at that stage and um, the, the work kind of came out, came out of daily experiences actually. I'd, I'd sort of been making work that um, was engaging with music specifically and um, uh, sort of with music practices and dance and choreography. And so uh, I wasn't particularly looking for a specific work. Uh, basically, I, used, I saw Muhammad, who is the, um, the performer on the Metro. I saw him on the Metro one day, and um, it was just a, one of those experiences that really um, was quite affecting. It really struck me. It was something that I really couldn't get out of my head. Um, and there's just so many, so much going on with Muhammad and sort of who he is, um, his physicality, his physical disability is part blind, um, his ethnic origin, his Algerian, he's singing in Arabic, he's, he's singing in Arabic in what sounds to be a traditional um, music. At the time I, I didn't know what he was singing, I later found out that it's, um, it's the music of Hasni, who's a Rai, which is our Algerian pop, very well-known Rai singer. He's quite an icon. Um, and also just the rawness of his voice. And on top of all that, he was accompanied by this completely battered up Casio keyboard with Hasni sticky taped to one side. And then like, you know, middle C has a sticky tape mark on it and other sort of, there's bits of sticky tape to guide him, I imagine. Um, but most of all, it was kind of the rawness of his voice and the delivery of his performance, which just felt like it wasn't a performance. It actually felt like it was um, 
coming some coming almost from some place of necessity rather than um, me merely busking. You know, like that's the thing. There's an economic transaction going on as well with Muhammad. He, you know, he goes around for coins after his performances. So it's this very sort of tragic, uh, you know, like almost pathos to his situation as well. But at the same time, there's this um, very real um, thing that touches you. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in feeling that. Other people who I've spoken to in Paris who've, who know, he's quite, he's kind of known um, a little bit. And so this was an experience that really affected me. Um, and around that same time, I um, was talking to a friend and he described to me this woman he'd seen at the local swimming pool while he was exercising. And he described this, an African woman standing waist deep in the shallow end of the public pool, slapping the surface of the water, making this incredible rhythmic music. And the image just sounded incredible to me. And it just sounded like something I wanted to see and hear. And so the work kind of came out of those experiences and I was, I guess I was in a new city and maybe there's something about being a foreigner and an outsider and not having a really good grasp on the language where you're kind of a bit more um, tuned in to certain things or maybe as, as a foreigner I also sort of, I was interested in the idea of the front, I don't know, but they just stuck with me. Yeah, you, you're kind of more open, you listen, you're looking and listening and using other types of methods of communication because language isn't the one that you can rely on so much. So yeah, they really struck me and that was going to be the work. But, um, but I felt that to show this piece, I originally called it Duet for Citizens and it's just going to be Muhammad and, and Zongo, but um, I felt that there's so much going on around those two people um, in terms of their socio-political situation within Paris as a city that it was very specific to that place. And actually those concerns are not what interested me about the two of them. It was about what I found fascinating was the way that they were sort of, there was this cultural preservation that was going on within their performance that they were actually carrying around in their body and they were the, like the, the physical actualization of those things. And so I thought I wanted to maybe, in order to pull that idea out further and focus that, um, perhaps I needed more musicians and it needed to be an assemblage of musicians who all shared that phenomenon in some way. And that's kind of where the next stage of development went. It was interesting um, hearing you reflect on that idea of being in a new city and um, part of it being sort of, uh, sort of linguistically displaced you know you were sort of uh, having to engage in a different way and it made you maybe a little bit more attuned to the particular language that was coming out in these musical yeah. sort of performances <clears throat> well it's yeah it's non-verbal communication i guess it's sort of something that you don't have to be um conversant in to get you know like you can you can have you can understand what they're doing you can you can you feel like you can have an understanding through the performance. And it, it's, it's, a very, um, it's very sort of strange that there is a sort of odd connection with Venetian blind Morse code, mm. your work which did um, sort of originate in Japan as well. Yes, very, the parallels are <laughs> really there. Um, uh, Venetian blind Morse code evolved out of a residency that I participated in last year in Yokohama in Japan. And the way I have described the residency the one-month residency, um, is as a non-stop comedy of events. Anything that could go wrong really went wrong. 
And, um, but I think it's what Angelica was saying, when you're in another place, somehow it's um, far more humorous. You don't have to be like emotionally locked into to all the things that are taking place. It was kind of like the 1972 movie What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill <laughs> where there are these four identical bags that go missing and it's just like these whole wacky situations where people are trying to retrieve the bag. <laughs> just felt like my life was like that and it was kind of great. I, I was thoroughly enjoying it. But in particular, um, the process of making decisions and having yeah, meetings was, was like, let's have a meeting to reflect upon a previous meeting, and then we'll schedule a meeting in the future, and then we'll have another meeting to discuss that meeting. It was a babushka doll of meetings. <laughs> and I just thought that, and well, in Yokohama, it's a whole amazing city of beige. And Venetian blinds feature heavily everywhere. So it was like, meeting Venetian blind. Wow, I could create an entire system of communication to circumnavigate this system, and I am sure that this would be far more efficient and faster, despite its obvious absurdity, absurdity and cumbersome nature. Um, and so really, that's where my idea came from. And then, yeah, the process of like making a book so that people could decode it and Ah, uh, just really went on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so you, how important is it that it is sort of a, a system? I mean, if you wanted, you could go out there and start yeah. communicating with Venetian um, Blind Horse Code. I guess, I mean, that's the... Every idea has multiple layers that inform an artwork, so that's the surface layer. And then I guess the methodology that is being employed, so everybody has that sort of situation where your grandpa could fix everything. Like my pop could pull everything apart and put it back together and he knows it inside out. But these days we're totally geared towards you buy it and you know it's guaranteed to break down straight out of warranty. And then you just buy another one. Like so I don't know how to do anything or put anything together and I, I sort of long for those simpler times in a way. So this sense of resourcefulness of the materials that are around us and being able to make do and know that you can find a different way to get around you're meant to do it this way well I'm gonna do it that way and that's okay so um, you know and it also harks back to childlike joy in having this secret form of communication that you're in and on with a friend it's like having two tin cans and a string. And that really tickles my fancy, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And yes. else too. Um, oh, I had a question related to that, but it's just completely blown my mind. Um, but uh, sorry, just to yeah. hark back, keep continue yabbering on that. Um, Louis C.K. has this whole great skit about um, how everything's amazing these days and nobody is happy. So a technology is incredible, we have come so far, but how he remembers in the past, how his grandparents had that, the, those old rotary phones that to dial them had sparks, you know, and it was like, and then you would move to the next kind of phone that was the dial phone if you had a friend that had too many zeros or nines, it was like, <laughs> and then you had like, 
the brick mobile phones that are in Wall Street, 87, the first movie, and how amazing and like powerful you were if you had that phone. And now we have mobile phones that can, you know, take photos of the back of your head and you can use them in an air raid and they have maps. Basically, we have Penny from Inspector Gadget's book. And that's incredible in my mind. But we are like the generation that just, we just expect everything to work. So you turn it on and it's like, that's not working. You know, like give it a second. It will work. It's sending a signal to space and back. Like it's incredible. So I don't know, you know, technology. It's like slow technology. Venetian blind moss code is a form of slow technology. Slow cooking's hot, slow technology is next. <laughs> and you know, sort of very literally, I guess that sense of sort of slowing down or arresting the everyday is what really, not only sort of unites Citizens Band, but a lot of your solo work for me is about that sort of using that cinematic language to to really sort of draw out those moments or um, sort of pause on those things that we move so fast that we just miss them in everyday life. Yeah, it's. Um, I was thinking about this today actually, the way that <clears throat> I've been really interested in um, certain cinematic techniques. I, I guess I'm drawn to the idea that um, there is a universal language that everyone across the planet understands, and it's the language of montage and editing and storytelling through the moving image, through movies and television, and that very, you know, the, the, the way everyone understands how pictures work in movies, you know, and there's something very attractive about using that methodology for me, and that's why I kind of have been working within sort of cinematic conventions, I guess. So, you know, conventional editing sequences, you know, wide shot, medium, close-up kind of scenarios because they're very clear and they're direct and they're understood by, you, you know, you don't need to be pre-educated. Everyone sort of gets that. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking about was that, um, you know, with technology, each new sort of phase of sort of um, technology we go through now, you know, we have these digital SLR cameras and, you know, making very beautiful deep focus cinematic moving images is actually really affordable now. But, you know, you still need a certain amount of craft and technique to be able to employ them in a specific way. But I do, I guess I'm interested in the way that you take an everyday subject, not an actor, not a model, someone who's like, you know, a high school student from a marching band, which is one project I did, or people at a big day out concert and look at them in close up. And through the lens of a, you know, a beautiful prime lens with deep focus and, you know, someone who knows about lighting, they become, you know, just this kind of, they become something else. They be their image becomes elevated because you understand it in cinematic terms. Mm. And for me, the, their situation in the moment takes on a different sort of meaning and, and, and importance as well. Mm. It's really interesting because I think that idea of, um, of using those manipulations and that language of, of cinema is, is another thing that sort of connects your projects uh, in, in very different ways. And, um, I guess coming here, I was thinking particularly about that line between sort of um, reality and fiction, or if you like, if you think about it in cinematic terms, it's, um, it's documentary and, and cinema, 
that runs in each of your works where um, I guess, you know, Kate with both Venetian blind Morse code um, and get into it, it's about setting up a kind of uh, set of filming parameters, but at some point um, it's the real action of you performing that, um, that animates the work and that I just wondered if you had anything to say about sort of what that push-pull is. Technological, technologically wise, I'm a total dum-dum. Like I, for me, the camera is, um, I like it. It's like a, I want it just to sit on a tripod and I just press record and frame it. And I just want it to be flat, but I think like still, like, you know what I mean? Like. It's a tool that records the action that I am setting up. But at the same time as the sort of the technology of filming is very straightforward, yes. the actual, um, the, the sort of visual language is quite quirky and complex. It's quite idiosyncratic in that sort of, they're not sort of, um, they're not real locations that you're filming necessarily. They refer to real locations, but they're these kind of constructed Sometimes they're real. I mean, the framing and aesthetic considerations definitely come from uh, my... At university, I studied photomedia and was very interested in conceptual photographers. So that is naturally just what I impose onto the video camera. I, I treat it just like a, like a camera. And for me, what's really important is that everything that happens in camera is real. So post-production, in my mind, is ingesting, fade in, fade out, loop, the end. That's how simple I want it to be. So it's really important that everything that happens in the frame happens real. So part of my challenge, and always part of my task is how do I make it a real thing? How do I live it out? How do I experience it to know it, to get behind it, to understand it, to share it? I, that's my greatest challenge. So with Get Into It, how do I go about climbing a wall with toilet plungers? And as I haven't been, as I live in Sydney and I haven't been able to lurk around and know what people are saying or thinking, but I, I have heard from time to time, oh, it's CGI, oh, you know, you're just climbing on the floor. But what I love is if you just spend a little time with it, you see the creases in the, in the, in the set because it's a five meter high frame that I've made that's three meters 80 wide. And the, the building comes from a building in my neighborhood that I just think is so bizarre and quirky. It's almost cartoon-like in its whole vibe, like the way the windows are like that. And I love setting up a story, like why is she climbing it? What's inside it? Why would you do that? Maybe she's escaping something. And then how it's like Groundhog Day, like climb up and go down. It's like mousetrap and just repeat, repeat. We all know that feeling. So. The realness is that. But for me, your works always, I read them through early cinema, actually. Yeah, like they, are, me, they do have that. Films are, your videos are sort of like part of the story of reenacting silent movie slapstick moments and sort of the impossible in camera kind of magic yeah. of early cinema, but you actually do it. 
Yes. And, but do you really do it? It's also, for me, yeah. it sort of still sits within um, that part of, you know, the cinematic. Um, yeah, there's an uncanniness on. that goes on. Like the, when you're sawing yourself around the hall, that's straight out of a cartoon. Like Definitely. There climbing is up the wall feels reference. like a Charlie Chaplin or, yeah, I don't know, not Charlie Chaplin, um, yeah, just early cinema sort of comedy. Well, I think in some way we all strive, you know, we all perform in some regard and we all strive to be taken seriously in the things that we do and we work hard and we're always going in circles and the world is completely predictable and unpredictable at the same time. And I think that those old, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin and Buster Keaton, even though on the surface all of their works are quite humorous, but just to dig a little deeper, I mean, you know that there's like, all these commentary about life and the struggle and <clears throat> oh woe me, but and being quite true to that, so you know, but they I happen in I the same way. I just think we can't escape those uh, certain iconography, you know, that they're kind of you know, maybe we're doomed to recreate them or something. I don't know. Like I just think that we're working in the moving image, and you know, we've been educated in whether it's conceptual photography or time-based art. Like we are operating within a sort of lineage, you know, a history of... Most definitely. And just think it, yeah, it comes... I mean, we ha you have to know that that's what you're referencing. Mm. Like it, there's no escaping that. But mm. I think you can reference that and then take it somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a real uh, sort of moment in your work, I think it's when you're about two-thirds of the way up the wall and you're sort of pulling yourself up and then you drop down, which for me is the moment you sort of realise that you're actually doing it for yeah. real <laughs> i mean there are things that you can't fake you can't fake gravity you can't fake how the body falls you can't you know and, that, and that's part of the thing with like cgi that totally freaks me out like those kinds of cartoons there's a, a creepiness about them like i and i work also with another artist um under a name of greedy hen and all of our works that we that I make with Catherine Brookman are really lo-fi and everything kind of is the same sort of thing but in a very collage, papery, tactile way that everything is real. Like, uh, yeah, it's something about the realness that really resonates for me. Mm. And, I mean, it's a sort of different balance of those things, I think, in your work, Angelica, where um, they are sort of real subjects that you've discovered and they are sort of... Um, performing as they do perform sort of on the streets or, or in their everyday lives, but you have um, constructed the scenario for this work um, mm. in which you film them. Yeah, that's right. So I, yeah, I kind of think about it in terms of it's somewhere between reenactment and documentary because really I'm asking these performers to do what they do. So Muhammad does busk every day in the metro and, you know, Asim is a whistling taxi driver in Brisbane, but it is um, being set up for the camera. So it is a performance for the camera. I think in Zongo's film, that's the most evident just because of the sort of composition of it. But it's kind of this thing that um, I feel like when the performance takes over and the way we've shot, I've shot all of those is that every camera angle is done as a, as a long take. So, um, they'll perform the whole piece all the way through each time. So it's, they are mostly there are like seven or eight minute takes. So you are actually witnessing a real performance. The construction happens, I guess, in the montage and the um, editing, but also 
Yeah, and we are set up on the street. You know, I work with a cinematographer and there's a sound recordist and myself and, you know, some a friend or whoever sort of helping out. Um, so, yeah, it is this construction, but at the same time it's real, but it's a construction. So it's, yeah, I don't, it's not really documentary, but it's not really narrative fiction either. It's constructed realness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, probably... You know, now is the right time to throw it over and see if there's any questions from, from you guys. Really no questions? <laughs> Hi, um, I'm just really curious, Angelica, about the ending of your work, um, the merchants um, and you came about having that. Yeah. <clears throat> The, um, I call it the cacophony section. Um, I, when, when I sort of got to the stage in developing the work where I wanted to find other musicians, it was quite important from early on. I had this idea that I wanted to generate some kind of sound piece where all of the musicians played together. I wanted to, and it's kind of, I guess, why it sort of refers to that in the title of Citizens Band, sort of hearing them as a, as a kind of, um, a performing ensemble in a way um, and I was kind of interested in this idea that because they're all performing their own thing when they would merge it would not I wanted to see what would happen and my hunch told me there was going to be pretty discordant but there might be times when harmonies sort of came through and and I thought well that's actually a really I think that could be an interesting way of representing certain ideas that I feel about these people and, and their experiences and um, the place they occupy. So I guess musically within that section I wanted to maybe consider the ideas of these things being thrown together and it being a sort of you know, melange or a mix of ideas where it is discordant but perhaps there's moments where it's harmonious but it's not completely ugly and it's you know there's sort of sections where it's quite lovely but it's not a fixed piece of music you know like and I just felt like that might be kind of a way of understanding broader ideas I don't know that are connected to the work somewhere but I worked with a um, composer to develop that piece and it's all from samples from the live recordings with the performers Any more questions? Hey, can you just tell us about how you decided to use the two strings and the finishing work? Just how those two work the same? Well, in a really straightforward way, um, <laughs> they mimic buildings. <laughs> and I, you know, I wanted that kind of experience with the work, like, like tennis, when you're at one and then, then the other and then the other and then the other. And I like that kind of viewer's experience of a work as well. That sort of participation, participation in it. And there's a lovely play on scale going on yeah. uh, between both of the works, I think, where these are sort of radically kind of scaled down and there's this kind of different sort of almost cartoon-like reality that yeah. is generated on screen as well. So Jane, that's what I <laughs> was thinking, and the kind of like corny '80s like kiosk booths. I don't know, like Expo '88. That, that's 
sort of what my, my, my vibe was. I have a question also, nobody minds. So you talked a lot about um, the, the slow communication uh, and feeling like you could do, you could communicate whatever it was that needed communicating quicker. How did you choose what you wanted to say without saying what you say? Um, well, that's a very good question. Uh, the communication came about from, as a result of an experience that I had and all of my works there is some sort of transformative kind of experience that I endure and that's usually the aim of the game. So in this work, if I look broadly at my entire practice, is usually in some capacity about work or work ethic or struggle, setting up a situation that I have to um, triumph over in some way. I thought that I would make the work on a different level, a very being John Malkovich kind of Malkovich Malkovich sort of reference. So I decided to go to a hypnotist and I wanted to have a conversation with the unconscious part of my mind, that part that we all totally ignore. And why am I so obsessed with the subject matter that I'm obsessed with? So originally the exchange was going to be based on that, like the questions and the responses from the hypnotism session, but I didn't know what was going to happen during that experience. So actually it's a little different, but you would have to decode it to understand that. And so then it became this kind of weird thing of talking with myself about the subject matter that I'm obsessed with and then in the world I'm embedded in the subject matter that I'm discussing. Yeah. <laughs> really, That's uh, what the world's all about, you know? Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. They're like these sort of smoke signals. Kind of like the babushka of meetings. <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing going on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm nervous or mindful that uh, a number of you may not have seen the work that we are talking about. This um, might be a good opportunity to get you into the gallery to have a look at uh, the works if you haven't already been in there and then you can ask some further questions and do some decoding and um, explore the work of Kate and Angelica Feather and of course Jeff's amazing work of uh, putting the show together. Um, so unless there is an absolutely burning question right now, I'm going to uh, well, There's a burning, burning. question, there's it's a burning, burning question at the back. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to ask this question to Angelica. Um, I'm just interested in regards to the presentation of the work. Um, if you could talk about your ideas about having the four, four screens in the kind of, in the audience in the middle, kind of like a chamber orchestra scenario. And also about the transition between um, each of the scenes in, in the work. Um, I wanted to, um, it was important from the outset that I, I was really, 
I'm interested in the way that the viewer kind of experiences this piece, um, and I wanted to enhance the um, uh, the view, yeah, like the sort of viewer performer relationship. I wanted that that was quite important, um, and so. I felt that by having placing the viewer within the center of this activity and the films kind of move around in a clockwise way, I felt like there was a, it was somehow changing that passive positioning of, um, of a viewer and a sort of, um, you know, a, a just a single screen in before them. Um, I wanted, I just wanted to sort of in, um, enhance the physical um, experience of the work. And then it was also important, once from the outset, this cacophony that's generated, that was kind of the moment where once you've experienced these four films, I wanted then for the viewer to be um, drawn in again, to have a different engagement with the piece uh, for that stage of the work. So the sound in that, um, in that section is a surround soundscape. So there's eight speakers in the installation that's designed so that there's actually sound coming from every direction, different individual instruments to make this mix. And for me, I really wanted to generate something that created almost like a communal type of experience or engagement with the work. Um, and uh, what I've heard and sort of seen so far is I just had this really nice moment on the opening where people sort of uh, were responding in ways during that period, during that moment where they kind of, you know, move around, look to each other and I'm probably going to wreck it for you now because I've already <laughs> talked about it and you're not going to maybe have a genuine experience of it. But um, yeah, that was kind of my thinking behind, behind that setup. And, you know, thinking about it, there are these two kind of um, sort of kinetic kind of lightscapes that bookend this show that is a complete accident, but maybe in retrospect I'll claim as a deliberate curatorial decision. Um, <laughs> and they are both about these moments where you kind of, where you kind of lose yourself and you're sort of just sort of, uh, it's sort of less of a separation between you and the work and it's just purely experiential yeah. as well. Yeah. And I wanted, to, I wanted to sort of get away from figuration by that point as well and for it just to be an oral, visual, sort of more abstracted experience. And just with the transitions, I just wanted them to be very simple. So they're basically just audio crossfades. So the sound of one image blends in. It's usually the um, atmosphere of the, land, of the environment just fades into the next one and it's, it's kind of got a pragmatic uh, purpose as well. It kind of guides the viewer where to uh, which direction to turn and it's sort of like an oral guide and that was the thing.